Lord, as we come this morning. Lord, what a joy it is to sing those truths, the God who would come incarnate, Lord, to even pause to consider just the phrase, come and see what God has done. Far too rarely do we ponder those things. And Lord, the list would fail us. Lord, that if we would think the oceans filled and were the skies of parchment made to write the love of God above, the scroll could not contain the whole. And so, Father, as we gather here, as we consider the Christ of Christmas and what you have done, Lord, may it be that we leave here awestruck and amazed. And so, Father, I come this morning confessing to you frailty, weakness, Lord, and I do so with great confidence. Lord, and because you make it abundantly clear that the authority of the preacher is not in himself nor his wisdom, but is in the authority of the word of God. And this morning, as we search the scriptures, we will search out to know the Christ of Christmas, to know him well, and Lord, to bow graciously before him as God and King. So Father, we ask you to meet with us. We ask you to do a great work in our hearts, grow our affections for Christ, our obedience and our faithfulness to him. Lord, that we might be faithful gospel heralds during this time. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We um, are taking a small break for the next two weeks from the book of John. Now we're doing this because John led us um, into a discussion Um, Last week we looked at John chapter 1 verses 14, really paid very close attention to what the scripture taught in regard to the one who would become flesh and dwell and tabernacle among us and also what his works would be. Now, it led us to Matthew chapter 1. Um, Matthew chapter 1 is really this first step into what the, um, what the incarnation is going to play out like. Um, and, you know, we talked about what the incarnation actually was, that Christ would come and dwell among us. But what we really want to do this morning is look at the narrative of how this came to pass. Now, next week we'll look at Luke chapter 2, and that's when we actually are going to look at everything that surrounded his actual coming. And we'll look in particularly at what the Puritans called the humiliation of Christ, when he would come as a man and dwell among us. This week, what I'd like to do is build some suspense. Now, the reason I would like to build some suspense is because um, we are so far detached from the Old Testament and their understanding of the Messiah that would come. And um, really, to place ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people or the God-fearers, those who looked forward to the Messiah's coming, we have to go to the Old Testament. Now, the beauty of this is Matthew chapter 1 gives us a great springboard for this so that we can begin to look back on all of the things that God had said that he was going to do. Now, I'm going to confess to you real quickly this morning, we are going to cover so much scripture. Now, for your benefit, I have them on slides be blessed. Um, and, uh, and the reason that we're doing that is because when we come to Matthew chapter 1, there's this grand moment um, that, that happens. And when it does, it is earth shattering. But for some reason, as we have become so accustomed and familiar with this story, um, I am convinced, I'm convinced that familiarity breeds apathy. 
the closer we get to something, the, the, the more we know it, the more we spend time with it, it is almost as though it loses its gravitas, its weight. Um, if you would like to see this worked out, you can consider the days when you begin dating your spouse. There's a great heaviness about it, excitement every single time you have the opportunity to spend time with them. But as time progresses, almost uh, uh, certainly there will be a moment where the gravitas is not there as much anymore. Um, don't judge me. Um, but but you, you understand what I'm saying. Um, and so with that, there's, there, there's, there either grows an affection and love or, or we become so familiar that apathy seeks, seeps in. So as we come to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, we're going to read through the passage as a whole and then we're going to break it down into three major points. So let's start reading Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I want you to hear this sentence. The weight of this sentence simply knows no bounds. Listen. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. I'm going to read it again. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, we approach this verse, and even reading the name, Um, I think we miss the weight of this. I mean, for thousands of years, people have been awaiting the name of Messiah. The Jewish people, as they would begin to think and consider the one who would come, they would simply refer to him as when Messiah or when Messiah comes to dwell among us. You can even see this illustrated in John chapter 4. When Jesus sits down with the Samaritan woman at the well, you have almost this mashup of cultures of Jew and Gentile there. But even she says, when Messiah comes... There is a longing in even this Samaritan woman's heart to know who Messiah is. They long for this. So this morning, what I would like to do is build some longing in our hearts by looking at what the Old Testament teaches in regard to Messiah. We are going to walk through 10 different passages. We're going to do so as quickly as I can. And if we run a couple of minutes late, you know, extra blessings for you this morning. Now, I am only doing 10. If I were to take the time to lay out the entirety of the prophecies of Christ, friends, the time would fail me. We could do a series on this and it would take me multiple years to walk through each of these. Scripture, especially the Old Testament, gives us no room, gives us no room at all to assume that any person other than Christ is the Messiah. And understand that there had been many who had come before him that claimed this role. And you watched as whatever rebellion or whatever thing they led would quickly be snuffed out, but that which is from the Lord remains. 
And so this morning, what we're going to do is walk through these. Now, so I promised you a sermon in a sentence every single time we meet together. So I'm two for two right now. Um, The sermon in the sentence is this. So this is the one walk away I want us to, to have this morning. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all, all Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And through his finished work, salvation has come to all those who trust in his name. That's the direction we're going. Everything we're going to talk about is essentially going to um, lift this basic idea up. So that when we leave here, hopefully what we have is every single saint, first of all, understanding the anticipation of the Jews as they awaited Messiah, but also would have a very firm foundation as they look back into the Old Testament that this Christ is the Messiah. And so... We are going to begin first and foremost with what we find in regard to the Christ of the Old Testament. So you find in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23, uh, you find Matthew making reference to um, an Old Testament prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we're not going to start there, but we're going to finish there. So what we're going to do is start all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Perhaps you're a little bit concerned because it is very early on. But the issue is that the the promised Messiah was not a promise that came late. It was not something that the Jews had to wait for to hear what God would do to reconcile and redeem that which was lost. In Genesis chapter 3, what we have is something called the fall. Now, many of you perhaps are familiar with this, but ultimately what the fall was is Adam and Eve rebelling against the word of God and taking the word of Satan because they longed to be like God. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, you find that God created every tree that was a delight to the eye and good for food and placed Adam and Eve in that garden that they might enjoy good, perfect, loving fellowship with the Father in a perfect environment. What a blessing that would be. And yet Adam and Eve were given one primary command that they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as they began to walk around the garden, as they would be accustomed to, um, they stumble upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as they are there, there is a serpent that begins to deceive them, begins ultimately to say that you can eat of this tree. It's perfectly acceptable for you. And in that deceit, Adam and Eve ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And immediately something horrid happens. Every single human soul that would be born through Adam would share in that same sin that he rebelled against God and because he has rebelled against him, all of his posterity, all of his children forevermore would be in the exact same situation. They would need a remedy. Now, we could consider perhaps that God maybe, uh, and I think that this is often the way that people think that God needed some time to kind of work out the plan. This is not the case at all. Far past that, God knew the plan before the foundation of the world. This is not plan B, friends. When we look at the Christ of Christmas, we are not looking at God making a secondary plan to dwell, with, to dwell with his people. Instead, we are looking at the completion of a plan. He begins to make it abundantly clear that there would be one who would come that would do a great work. So let's look at the very first prophecy of Christ in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you want the big theological word for this, it is called the Proto-Evangelion. It is the very first prophecy of Christ. Friends, this prophecy finds itself in the midst of a curse. The beauty of this is as he looks at Adam and Eve and the serpent, he begins to curse them. There is some repercussions for their actions. Sin has entered in, and because sin has entered in, there will be repercussions. But what joy it is that amidst the curse, he gives us a grand promise. He looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now I want you to hear this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I actually really like the way the NIV puts that and it says he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. 
The beauty of this is the harshest curse does not come on man who actually sinned and rebelled against the holy God. Instead, the harshest curse comes against the enemy, comes against that serpent. And God is going to send one who will absolutely destroy, crush, stomp out this enemy. It is the very first prophecy of Christ, the one who would deliver us, the one who would ultimately come, be born of a woman. And that's very interesting language here. It is not the idea of, it ultimately conveys an idea of one born free from man's um, uh, partaking. Completely and totally from something that we know not of. So the very first thing that we see here in regard to the Messiah that would come is Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The one that would crush the head of the enemy. Now, I want you to pause for a minute and place yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve begin to consider this. They know the fall has come, and I am convinced that they actually believed for just a brief moment that their firstborn was the one who would be that great child. They were sadly mistaken. Instead, we watched that one, Cain, slaughter his brother Abel. And Abel dies, and as he does so, his blood cries out to the Lord. But friends, the beauty of the Messiah is his blood will cry out, but it will cry out a better word one of reconciliation and redemption, not of condemnation. And so when we look at this passage, you can almost imagine Adam and Eve's longing, even as they name their firstborn, to kind of symbolize that you are the one who will come, you are the one that will deliver us. And I want you to place yourself here for just a moment. Adam and Eve would go to the grave not seeing and knowing the Messiah that would come. Can you imagine longing for something throughout the entirety of your life, knowing that the promise will eventually come, but not being allowed to see it? So not only does Adam and Eve have this great um, uh, 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 longing to see this, but not only do we see the fact that he is the one who will crush the head of the enemy, but we also see that he will be the one who is the blessing to the nations. Notice this in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, my question for you this morning is, Isaac the blessing, or even the nation of Israel, are they the blessing? Are they the ones that we have through them a blessing across all of the nations? Every single tribe, tongue, and nation under the earth is blessed. Yes, due to one that would come through Abraham, but it is not Isaac. Isaac is not the promised one. We can even see this in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac, he goes up to a mountain called Mount Moriah. This is Moses pinning it. And he even says, to this day, it is Mount Moriah where it will be provided. Isaac was not the promised one. The ram that took his place was not the true one that would be slain in his stead. Instead, what we find is on Mount Moriah years later, thousands of years later, the true and better Messiah would come and he would provide salvation for all those who would believe in him. And so we have Abraham longing to see this. He wants to see the one, the true promised one. And we even find later on in the, in the gospels that Abraham saw this day that God gave him that grand privilege. So not only do we have one who is blessed, who will bless the nations, but we also have this in Genesis chapter 49. We almost see this narrowing that takes place. So for instance, first of all, we know that through Adam, the Messiah would come. Secondly, we know that it would be through Abraham that the Messiah would come. But we have this narrowing down through Jacob when he blesses Judah. And so in Genesis chapter 49, verse eight, it says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. It is rather interesting in this, if you consider the context here, because a couple of years earlier, Joseph looks at his brothers and say, you'll bow down to me. 
And the only reason that Joseph had permission to say that is because Joseph was a representative. He was a shadow. He was the one making reference to the true God and King who would descend to the lowest realm of the world, but then ascend to the highest seat of authority. And so in Genesis chapter 49, we have, Joseph, we have, we have uh, Israel look at Judah and bless him this way. Your brothers shall praise you. Judah hearing this, I wonder what stirred up in his mind. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. All of your enemies will be defeated. Your father's son shall bow down before you. They shall gladly fall on their faces before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. Now I want you to hear this language real quickly. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. I want you to consider for just a moment what this, really, what this really is impacting here. It is making reference to the one who is high and lifted up, the one whose brothers shall bow down before him. He stoops down. He crouches low. And friends, the beauty that this has is the one who would come would be the one who would condescend. He would be the one that would stoop down to his brothers that he might bring them up to his position. Now, we can look at that in one way, but as we continue, it goes on to say, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That the one who would come through Judah would not only be the one that was promised to Adam and Eve, not only the one promised to Abraham, but promised to Judah, and ultimately would be the true ruler of not only Israel, but of all the nations. That the scepter would not depart from him. Continuing on, it says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, if that is not clear enough for you, we begin to look at the last verse in this passage. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, if you were, I mean, the vast majority of people, even those who are unfamiliar with the true magnitude of Christmas, are familiar with the fact that Jesus began to ride in on Passion Week. What did he ride in on? It's very interesting because as he's giving this charge over Judah, he is making reference to his authority, to his rulership, to the fact that he alone will be the true possessor of the kingdoms of the nations. And he says, But you will ride on a donkey. What king rides on a donkey? Consider for a minute. I mean, what king rides on a donkey? What? No, we ride on the noblest of steeds, the strongest of horses, that their beauty would be incredibly vast, that even the things on which we come into the city would be something that men would look at and immediately know that we are highly esteemed, that we are indeed the true ruler of all things. Instead, what we find here is this. We find one that the scepter will not pass from, but one who will ride in on a donkey. Not even a full-grown one at that. And if that is not enough, we can immediately flow into this next phrase. He has washed his garments in wine. In the Old Testament, wine, and particularly the wine press, is an idea that's supposed to be a symbol of the wrath of God. You can imagine almost during those days to press wine was the idea of smashing it to such a point where all the juices were out. The same way that we would find in Christ one who would be crushed in our stead. And one who would indeed be covered with blood, even to the point of unrecognition, as Isaiah would say. But what you have here is this idea of one who is the true authority, God and king, ruler, but descending all the way down in humility to come in on a donkey's colt and be one that would have himself pressed and and, and crushed in our place. It's an interesting thing. And honestly, you cannot imagine one who would fulfill this role other than the person of Christ. What king would do this? And so you can imagine Judah hearing these things and almost wondering, what inconsistencies? How is it that I will be the one that the scepter will not pass from, but nonetheless, through my lineage, there will be one who will come that will ride on a donkey's colt and will be, and will be uh, washed his garments in wine, his vestures in the blood of grapes? 
What, what is this? A suffering king. Continuing on, not only do we have one who would die in our stead, who would come as the true king, but in humility, we have this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You see, one of the great promises of the people of Israel is there are three major offices that they needed to have fulfilled at all times. First of all is that, is, is that of prophet. Now, Moses was a great prophet, and even to this day, if you speak to an Orthodox Jew, they are going to highly esteem Moses to be the greatest prophet of all time. Now, we know that's not the case because we have a true and better prophet, and even Moses knew this. Notice this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore lest you die. It's making reference to the fact that when God spoke over the people of Israel, they were so horrified by the strength and the power of the voice that is able to shatter cedars. They said, please give me one who can speak for you, for your voice is too mighty. Moses was able for a small period of time to fulfill the office of prophet, but he was limited by his mortality. And even then he was limited by his sin because he, just like us, was in Adam. He is a prophet, but he is not the true and better one. It continues on and says this, and the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Jesus even makes reference to this. He says, all that I say, I say because the Father has given it to me. What we have in Christ is the true and better prophet. And in him, really my my heart, that was what I want you to see here, is the idea that as they would look to Moses as their great prophet, even many today do. It's tragic if you consider that for thousands of years they awaited the true prophet to come, the one who was actually able to speak for God in a way where it was actually God's words coming out of his mouth. The Jews waited, and for those of them who found Christ and said that that he is indeed the true prophet, their waiting came to an end, and they became fulfilled or completed Jews. But what's tragic is there are many still today that sit silently waiting for their true and better prophet, the one like Moses. It's tragic because he is indeed the Christ of Christmas. And so as we look first and foremost, he is our better prophet. He continues on and says this, I love this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, not only is he the true and better prophet, this Messiah that will come, he is also the true and better priest. He is not a priest in the order of Aaron or the Levites. Instead, he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, of righteousness. He actually is able to bridge the gap between God and man. Can you imagine being a Jew watching the priest fulfill all of these different requirements, whether that be the sacrificial system or the wave offerings, the grain offerings, all these things that you would bring before them that they might reconcile you to God and realize that tomorrow I must do it again. Tomorrow that sacrifice must be made or even imagining the day of atonement where they would come and they would consider that all of their unconfessed, unrepentive sin would be dealt with in full. They'd go home and they'd wait till next year where they would repeat it. You see, these priests were not actually able to fulfill the role of priest. They needed one that actually possessed righteousness to stand in their stead. They need one from the order of Melchizedek, one who was eternal, that has no death recorded, that one that will actually come and be able to stand in the gap between God and man. We see this fulfilled in Christ when he says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our better priest. Not only is he our better prophet, our better priest, but the Messiah that will come will also be our better king. Can you imagine a king that was better than David? 
We read the stories of David and perhaps there are moments where we look at them and we consider that brief moment of his sin. But friends, I will confess to you that if you read through the story of David, you will find sin rampant in him for he was just a man. A great man, one after God's own heart, yes, but he was just a man. But what we need is a better king. One who would not be taken away by death, but one who would actually be able to conquer our greatest foes. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 14, we see this prophecy, this, this thing that the Lord gives to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, he shall, who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is able to sit on this throne? Who is able to be the one that establishes this kingdom forever? It can't be David, it can't be Solomon. It can't be any of their posterity because friends, they will pass away. They will die. They are not able to sit on that throne eternally. And the beauty is David even recognized this because in the Psalm we read earlier, Psalm 110, David says this, it's an incredible passage. The Lord says to my Lord, this is David. Who has a higher position of authority in Israel? Who could he be speaking of when it says, the Lord says to my Lord? We know that it cannot just be a man because he actually does have all authority in Israel. He bows gladly before the king, the true king of Israel. But friends, this passage makes reference to the fact that there is a conversation taking place between God the Father and God the Son. And David gladly recognizes that both of them are his Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Not only is the Messiah that will come our better prophet, our better priest, our better king, he is the king that David himself recognized. When David bowed before him, he did so gladly. Now to continue, Isaiah chapter nine is perhaps one of the most famous passages in regard to the um, coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse six and seven, it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Let's pause right there for a moment. For to us a child is born, for us a son is given. What we know from this passage is the coming one, the Messiah, will be one who is actually born. He is actually a true man. Now, I'll be honest, I can't even imagine reading this without the light of the New Testament. It would baffle me for days, but because I have the New Testament, I'm able to see that in Christ we have the true God, true man. Because in this exact same phrasing, it begins to continue, and it says this, of this child that is born and this son that is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How in the world can this be? How can the one that's coming, how can Messiah be both the child that is born, the son that is given, the one who would become and take on flesh, and also we can look at him and yes, call him the son of man, but we can also say that he is mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. You see, the requirements in the Old Testament for Messiah are so incredibly intricate that, that, that as we look into the New Testament, there's only one explanation, there's only one that fulfills each of these things, and his name is Jesus. You see, as we look at all of these, as we look at each and every one of these, as even this passage continues and says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end in the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the Christ of Christmas. Now we look forward to them and I can imagine the Jews longing. Can you imagine those who would read this scroll of Isaiah as they looked at this, for to us a child is born, a son is given. Can you imagine the longing in their hearts as they sat through difficult trials and tribulations waiting for one that would deliver them and not the way that others had, not deliver them like the way that Gideon had, not deliver them the way David had or Solomon or any of the other great men of old, but he would actually deliver them 
He would set them truly free from absolutely everything that bound them. Now, Daniel chapter 7 is the last, and the reason I include this is because Jesus made reference to himself as this more frequently than any other name. Daniel chapter 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom to all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. That not only do we have one that's born of a virgin, do we have one that came through Abraham, that came through Judah, that ultimately would come through the line of David, but one that would be called the Son of Man, as Christ would be called. And here we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 7, looking at, back at um, Matthew chapter 1 even, where it's cited, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I realize we covered a whole lot. And I covered a whole lot intentionally. Because I want you to see the incredible intricacies that God placed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. There is no mistaking the Messiah. There are many that will reject him today. But friends, for us to look into the Old Testament and then see the new, to see that covenant fulfilled, my friends, there is absolutely no question who the Christ of Christmas is. There are many still waiting, foolish though they be. Do not be that fool. Because for even just that small picture, I mean, that's 10, 10 prophecies. I mean, I, I could have, if we took just Genesis, we can paint almost an, a perfectly clear picture of the Messiah that would come. But instead, what we have is throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, this momentary, this, this progressive revealing of the Son, that they might know him in full, that they might, as this moment in Matthew 1 comes, they will look at him and say, this is the one we have been waiting for. They would know him. And so I would encourage you to look back at Matthew chapter 1. I wanted you to see the person, the one that would come. Now I want you to see his name, firstly, and secondly, his work. Because what we must understand is as we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, there is in this passage such great weight and such great joy that, um, honestly, words fail me. I'll never forget uh, my first Christmas, actually, as a believer in Christ. And I would read through this. Matthew 1.21, and I realized that at this phrase, all of those who had been waiting for the Messiah breathed a glorious sigh of relief. Because this angel that spoke to Joseph said this, She will bear a son, unto us a son is given, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now let's break this up into two parts, shall we? First of all, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, to Joseph, you place yourself in his position. He's been dealing with a great deal of strife. You can imagine to find out the one that you are betrothed to is pregnant. Now, he, he was not completely aware at all, actually, that the one whom is in the womb of his betrothed is the Son of God, that God has given him a unique position to, to protect and to provide for as he dwells as a child to grow up under. What a grand privilege, a horrifying privilege at that. But as the angel comes, he reminds him first and foremost that he calls Joseph son of David. He reminds him that that lineage of which you are a part of is the one promise the Messiah would come through. So when I look at you and I tell you now that in the womb of Mary is one born and conceived of the Holy Spirit, I am not, he, he is not all of a sudden confused. He knows exactly what's coming. He says, I am the son of David. And because I am the son of David, then I know that the, the Messiah can actually be born through, through, through my lineage. 
and he hears this name. And I want you to understand the moment this comes because for 400 years in, in, uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we call it the prophetic silence. There's a complete and total silence. The prophets aren't speaking anymore, at least not the true ones. And they are longing for some word from God. They're longing to know, is the Messiah actually going to come? And in this moment, the name that, that is actually able to save and redeem not only Israel, but the nations, every single one of them comes. And I want you to imagine just for a moment that name on your ears as you have longed for the Messiah. Joseph, what a grand privilege he had to hear this name. If that at that name he knew salvation has come. Not only that, but he also knew that that name is, it would be familiar to him. You see, Jesus is the name that we would find in Joshua. And as we consider the person of Joshua, Joshua was promised to bring the people of Israel into God's rest. But as they crossed the Jordan and as they entered into that place, all they met was war. Yes, it was a promised rest that would come, but ultimately Joseph would not be the one that would deliver it. Joseph was not the one that would bring them into the promised land. He was simply a shadow, a figure, a type that we might look to Jesus and know that the substance is there. That the one who would come, the one whose name would be the same as Joshua. God with us, Jehovah saves. That when we hear that name, we hear a true and better Joshua. One who is actually able to allow us to enter into his rest, not because we go and we make war, but because he has made war for us and set us free from all that would enslave us. Not only that, but we are able to enter into his rest. We don't even know what rest is. You see, we, we think of rest as, Uh, this afternoon laying on the couch and taking a nap. And in that I will rejoice. But rest is freedom from that which binds you. Rest is having no snare on you. I have said it and I will say it many more times that the beauty of the gospel is it is a threefold salvation. He first delivers us from the consequence of sin. Secondly, he delivers us from the power of sin. And lastly, he will deliver us from its presence forevermore. That is rest. That as Joshua entered into the promised land with those people, they had to make war. We simply walk in proclaiming Christ and him crucified. He is our rest. And we will be met with just that. See, Jesus, this name that Joseph would hear would immediately resound in his ears, one who will save. Lastly, I would like to point out to you his work. And I'm going to confess to you that as we look at this, there's a whole lot here, things from which I will not shrink back because they are joyous. And in them I can rest very comfortably. Notice the language. For he will save his people from their sin. First and foremost, you will notice the definitive article here. He will save. It is not up for negotiation. It is not something that he might do. It is something that he actually will accomplish. And I told you that as I read this passage for the first time as a Christian, I remember reading this and thinking to myself, he has actually done it. When Matthew one twenty one echoes, heralded from the angel's mouth, every single one who would be rescued and redeemed by Christ can take a deep sigh of relief because he has actually accomplished the salvation salvation of his people. It is not a might. It is not a possibility. It is actual. Now, the beauty of this is this, that for those of us who would call out on this name, the name that is given that we might actually have reconciliation and redemption for each and every one of us who would do this, then we do not have any fear and trembling before the throne of God because Jesus had made it completely and totally not only possible but actual to stand before him and hear well done my good and faithful servant Matthew 121 is the grand declaration that God will complete the work that he set out to his saying is his doing for him to say this for these words to come from his mouth for him to send this angel to declare this to David it is as if the atonement is already finished 
because God has declared that it will be done. His people will be saved. Now, secondly, I will point out this as well. For he will, and then you notice this, his people. He will save his people from their sin. Now, um, many people perhaps would get up in arms about this, or they would argue that this is in reference specifically to the Jews. But what you find is it is making reference to one particular people group. And you will find also that Christ came not to simply rescue the Israelites, because we mentioned a while back, it is too light of a thing that he should do that. No, the Messiah will rescue the nations. The Messiah will rescue all that are his In John chapter 6, we get a beautiful picture that all that the Father gave him, he will keep. And all the Father gave him, he will raise up on the last day. When we come to the scriptures, in particularly this one, we come resting very comfortably that if we are his people, then we are free from our sin. Now, the question must be asked then, how do we know if we are his people? How do we know? There is one means and one means only to know if you are his people. Have you trusted in Christ? Now, let me make it abundantly clear because I don't want to be vague here. Trusting in Christ is not the idea of looking to him and saying, yes, he'll do. Trusting in Christ is looking at him and saying, he is my all in all. He is the greatest hope and joy of my soul and my life. We do not have a salvation that God would give us something so lightly that it is simply a here come y'all. No. The salvation that he offers us is come, bow before me as, our, as your better prophet, priest, and king. The one to which David would cry, my Lord, that we too might gladly say, my Lord. To gladly submit to his authority, that is what it means to come to him in faith. It is looking at him and saying, away with all of my good deeds. That the Jews who would come, they would cast all of their righteous acts that they would do at the temple to the side, even to the point where Paul, the one who had the most righteousness perhaps that any man could muster, said, it's garbage. Coming to Christ as your better prophet, priest, and king is saying you are everything. And everything this world would offer me is garbage. It is trash. It is not worthy to even be compared to you. And so he will save his people. Now, lastly, I have to make reference to the fact that he will save his people from their sin because for some reason in our day and time, we think that Jesus saves you from death. That is not the case, and it is a weak gospel. He saves you from that which causes death. It is almost the idea of one coming to you and saying, hey, we can sustain you through your cancer, but we're not going to actually deal with the cancer itself. Instead, what we have is one who would come and remedy that which longs to destroy us, that he comes to set us free from death in full by ridding us of that which causes it. He will save his people from their sin. I will add in then that his people grow to, grow to despise and hate sin. If you call yourself a Christian and you do not hate that for which Christ died, then friends, you are fooling yourself. I will read this to you. I think this is a fantastic summary of this passage from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, The name of Jesus is given to our Lord because he saves, not according to any temporary or common salvation from enemies and troubles, but he saves from spiritual enemies and especially from sins. Joshua of old was a savior. Gideon was a savior. David was a savior. But the title is given to our Lord above all others because he is a savior in a sense in which no one else is or can be. For he saves his people from their sin. No human can do this. David in all of his might cannot. Solomon in all of his wealth fail. Gideon, even amidst a battle that is insurmountable, cannot. There is no figure, and I would argue, I would add in perhaps you, 
You are not able to deliver yourself from sin. It has you captive. It is your snare. And friends, apart from one breaking your bondage, apart from this Messiah, the name Jesus, the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, can we actually be free from our sin? And so I bring this to you hoping that as we look forward into the Christmas season, and in particularly next week when we look at the Gospel of Luke, the account of Christ coming and dwelling among us, that we might rest very comfortably with the Christ we find in the manger is the true Christ of Christmas. And only He, only He is able to save to the uttermost. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are good Lord, we thank you for the incredible intricacies that you put in place in the Old Testament to, make, to clearly identify the Christ that would come. Lord, there's no mistaking him. The Gospel of Matthew makes it abundantly clear. In the first four chapters, we find multiple prophecies fulfilled by Christ, prophecies that no man could fulfill. Only God could do this. And so even as we look back on that song, Noel, look what God has done. Lord, we come thanking you because you made the way where there was not one. Lord, and it was not a way that you simply crafted on the fly, but instead it was brought about before the foundation of the world, Lord, that Christ had agreed that he would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, actually able to save his people from their sin. Lord, we thank you that our salvation is not possible but actual. Lord, that when we look at it, when we consider the fact that Christ died in our stead, it is not the idea idea of looking to one that perhaps is a door that we can walk through, but one who drags us through the door amidst our our crippled selves, our fallen, weak selves, hungry and thirsty, weak and frail, you bring us to God. Thank you, Lord. You are better than anything that this world would offer us. And so, Lord, by your grace, I ask you this morning for the saint. Lord, may they be dazzled by nothing other than Christ. And if anything longs for their attention, may they kill it because you alone are worthy. You are our greatest treasure and delight. For anyone in here, Lord, who doesn't know you, Lord, may they see and rejoice in the Christ of Christmas who is able to deliver them from their sin and by that deliver them from death, Lord, that we might cry, where, O death, is your sting? Because you took the sting of death, you bore our sin in your body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, Lord. Everything required for salvation you have finished. We simply are people that gladly enter into your rest and say solely Deo Gloria as we do, to the glory of God alone. So Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel of Christ and it we rest. It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray.